0: Hi, welcome back to the podcast, Uh, A Light Unto My Path. I'm your host, Howard Sides. Uh, We're continuing our study in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 1. This is the second lesson in chapter 1. And we're picking up in verse number 8. Last week we covered the consummation of the age, uh, talking about the eventual triumph of Jesus. Today will be, in verse 8, the everlasting triumph of Jesus, and that is based on three of his great attributes of his deity. First, his omniscience, second, his omnipresence, and then third, his omnipotence. Uh, The first one being the omniscient, verse 8, it starts off with, I am Alpha and Omega. Alpha is the first, and Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. Uh, so basically, what he is saying is, he is God's alphabet. The alphabet is a way of obtaining, storing, and passing along knowledge to future generations. One of the greatest tools we have as humanity is the ability to write and to, uh, I think, read is very good, but writing it and speaking passes along a lot of our knowledge, but the writing is, is, is the tool. I think that that was able for us to record things uh, in a way we could pass them on without being able to speak. Some people can't uh, hear what we have to say. Um, others uh, are blind. They can't see. So writing uh, in, a, in effect, when you count Braille, uh, e- even those who are blind have a way of reading things and events that happened in the past. And in saying that Jesus is the alphabet, is it is our first and final uh, resource uh, for all knowledge, for understanding and for wisdom. the Bible tells us that uh, he came the first time to redeem uh, when he comes the second. Time. excuse me, when he comes the second time he will come to reign uh, with the uh, millennial reign, the thousand year reign. we'll talk about uh, a couple of chapters from now. Second of all, uh, his attribute of being omnipresent and that is uh, discussed in the phrase there at the beginning and the ending, uh, it's stated here in terms of time, but is also true in terms of space. Uh, we see that in Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, where he says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Uh, David Livingston's favorite passage was Matthew chapter 28, and verse 20. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So no matter where you are, with him saying the beginning and the ending, uh, it's not just uh that he's there in the beginning of time, and he's always there to the end of time, but he's also there uh, in the place that we're in. So it's more of a personal thing on that level than it is just a generic statement. And David Livingstone, uh, when he had that as his favorite verse, he was quoted as saying uh, that at every moment of crisis, he would write this passage in his diary, and he would say, and I quote, it is the word of a gentleman of the strictest and most sacred honor, and that's the end of it. (laughs) And so no matter where he was at, what was happening, he knew that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ was there with him. Okay, the third attribute, uh, his omnipotence, is covered in the next phrase of the verse, where it says, uh, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Now the first part has been used to describe the Father, uh, which is and which uh, was and, and which is to come, but now it's used here to describe the Son. Now we know Uh, in the Trinity, where God is the Father, Jesus Christ is the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit, the third entity, we still know that in that Trinity, they are all one of the same. It's different characteristics of the same person. And and the best way I've ever heard to explain that, uh, where people just have a hard time thinking of three people being one, is the example of uh, one person can be a a son, a husband, and a father, um, or it could be a daughter, a wife, an aunt, you know, that's three people in one. I know that's a very uh, downgraded version of what that represents, but, but that kind of gets your mind wrapped around what it's saying, but Jesus Christ is God in every sense of the word. Now, the word almighty is used 57 times in the Bible and eight times alone in Revelation. Now, that is a numerology uh, topic, and num- numerology is the study of numbers in the Bible, the number of times things uh, are spoken or, or written in the Bible. And so when you see a unique word, you can do a study on how many times it's in the Bible, and it, and it gives you an in-depth definition of what that word represents. For example, this word Almighty, we mentioned this. It, it's used 57 times in the Bible. Fifty times in in the entire Bible, and uh, eight times alone just in Revelation. Okay, now the word or the number fifty in biblical numerology represents deliverance or jubilee, and the number seven represents spiritual perfection or spiritual completion. Now the number eight represents resurrection and regeneration. So based on that, Matthew twenty eight eighteen says, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus has the power to do all these things. He can deliver us. He is the spiritual perfection. He is obviously the resurrection and the regeneration. He's going to rapture us out of here, and the graves are going to be opened, those that are taken up, we're all going to be regenerated. We're going to be given spiritual bodies at that point. So he has the power to do all of those things, the 50 things, the 7 things, and the 8 things. Okay, now moving on to verse 19, we'll talk about the character of the age. And As I go through this, I guess I should point out, I always title things, I try to put them in categorical order, uh, such as verses uh, 4 through 7 was the course of the age, verse 8 talked about, or 7 and 8 talked about the consummation of the age, now verse 19 through 20 talks about the character of the age. Okay. All right. So, and then we'll split it down into other titles, but that's kind of like the column headings, if you will. Uh, so here in verse nine, we're talking about an age of individual witness. Uh, first of all, the identity and persecution. I, John, who also am your brother am your brother, that's his connection as a common believer with those in each of the churches. They knew who he was, but he was connecting with them and saying that I am like you. Okay, Now, his authority to speak was based on their common suffering. What John was going through, uh, his suffering there on the Isle of Patmos, he was basically under arrest. Uh, was no different than what the some of these members in these seven churches that he's going to be writing these letters to uh, are going through in, in their churches, too. And uh, there's a Native American proverb that goes with that. It says, never criticize a man until you've walked a mile in his moccasins. So and, and, and the opposite of that could be true, too. Uh, don't try and tell another man how to live his life unless you've lived in his shoes. And that's where Jesus has the unique ability to do that. There's nothing that he asks us to do that he hasn't been faced with himself. He would not ask us to live uh, a Christian life. If he couldn't live the Christian life and he lived the Christian life. And when we say the Christian life, uh, that, that's a term that is ha, has been generically watered down uh, for a long time now. Uh, everybody you come across today uh, says they're a Christian and yet they'll turn around and they'll they'll drink and they'll cuss and and carry on. And then it's and, and not skipping a heartbeat. They talk about going to church. And and that really bothers me because the word Christian means Christ like Christ-like, and I mean, if we're fair, if we're honestly fair, and we really look inside, there's not many of us that can actually claim to be Christ, uh, Christian in that aspect of it. There's not many of us that are walking like Christ. Sure, we're we're attempting to, uh, but but we're not very successful at it. I don't think there's very many people successful at it. Every everybody fails. But that that that's a very loose translation of of the term Christian. So I'm not really. Uh, Liking the fact of how it's just thrown around so easily. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 15 tells us, Then I came to them of the captivity of Tel-Abib, that dwelt by the river of Chabar, and I sat where they sat, and remained there astonished among them seven days. Now Ezekiel had to identify with these people. Then God gave him words to speak when they would listen to him. Once he'd been involved with what they were going through, And then he came out as a prophet and spoke to them. They'd be more apt to hear what he had to say because they knew what they could tell he knew what they were going through because he had sat there with them. And and, and speaking of that, sometimes God has to put those of us who do speak to others, um, uh, teachers and pastors and maybe just the the common Christian man or woman, a lady, uh, in, in certain situations where we think, you know, God, why'd you let me go through that? And it may be so that when you cross paths with someone who is going through something like that, you will be able to talk to them on that level. And they'll know that either if they, if they know you, they'll know you've been through it. If they don't know you, then as soon as you start talking to them about it and you'll talk to them in a way that they understand, they realize you know what they're going through because you're talking of the experience from the inside, not looking in on it. Uh, and in the pulpit commentary, there's a quote in there uh, that goes with this very well. It's in, in a quote. It was in exile that Jacob saw God at Bethel, in exile that Moses saw God at the burning bush, in exile that Elijah heard the still small voice, in exile that Ezekiel saw the likeness of the glory of the Lord by the river Shabar, in exile that Daniel saw the ancient of days. So not only do we uh, have to sometimes go through things that we don't really understand but sometimes god has to get us off alone in exile if you will so that he can speak to us in a way that we're apt to hear and i think that's a good example in our prayer life uh many times some of us try to pray and we've got our cell phone sitting right there with us and if yours is like mine it's got alerts and notifications just about on every program i have and you don't know how to shut them off so every time uh Lord, I want to thank you. Ding, ding, ding! Your phone's going off, and it just you lose your train of thought. So it's good to get yourself in in a mini exile, especially when you are praying. Get alone with God. That's what that means. Don't have any interruptions. You know, find you a closet, private place out in the woods, uh, wherever in your car, and just shut everything off. Uh, the next phrase in there, and companion. Uh, now there were some. <clears throat> there were was some common form of persecution or torture that they were all or most of these people were going through. And so where he says, I'm your brother and companion, it fits together uh, that he knows what they're going through and they know what he's going through. So that, that lends that opportunity for him to speak and they will hear him. Okay, the next phrase, in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience. Now, before we just bunch all these together and trying to find the character of what he's talking, he's using three very distinct words here. And, and he doesn't just throw these out. They're words that represent something. And, and I want to take a minute to go over them. The first one there, tribulation. It is the Greek word thalipsis. Thalipsis. And it originally meant simply pressure, uh, such as a stone on a person's body. And in New Testament times, it more closely described the pressure of events associated with persecution. So when they use that word tribulation, uh at times it just meant pressure g- generically but then as the new testament come about and there were these persecutions going on they would use this word tribulation and, and that's where that term was associated with persecution uh the word kingdom is the greek word uh basileia 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 yeah. <laughs> all right make sure i'm saying it right which means the kingdom the place of desire which the christian's heart is set upon uh, basically heaven. Uh, the word patience is hupomane, hupomane, hupomane. Uh, not the passive submission to a tide of events, but rather a more aggressive meaning. It describes the spirit or courage and conquest, which leads to gallantry and transforms even suffering into glory. So patience is a word we use a lot today. And and we tend to give it the first meaning there uh, of more of a passive submission. You know, just have patience, hold out. But, but here it has a more aggressive meaning there. Um, and it's the spirit of courage and conquest, which leads to gallantry and transforms even suffering into glory. And many times the word patience in the Bible represents that. And it's more of a sense of uh, holding on to of enduring. I think enduring fits good with that to come through to the other end. So the Christian situation was this. They were in Thalipsis, tribulation. And as John saw it in the midst of terrible events which preceded the word of the world, the end of the world, sorry. They were looking towards Basilia, the kingdom. There was only one way from Thalipsis to Basilia, from tribulation to the kingdom, from affliction to glory. And that was through Hupamane, which was patience or conquering endurance. Matthew 24, 13 says, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Acts 14, 22, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 2, 12, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. So you see those three words were not just thrown together in there for him to fill up this letter. They had a very uh, specific and dedicated meaning. All right, the next phrase of Jesus Christ uh, in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ here is the who hup- who uh, The patience or the endurance can it can only be found in Him. Uh, we sometimes think that uh, a personal character may be one of severe patience, but this is talking about a patience that only comes from Him. And Hebrews twelve twenty two says looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured, Hupamone, the cross, despite the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay? Now, the Isle of Patmos, let's talk about that a minute, it mentions that next, uh, was in the isle that is called Patmos. Okay? The isle itself is about 10 miles long and about 5 miles wide. It's crescent-shaped. Uh, with the horns of the crescent pointing east. Okay, so if you can picture like a, a crescent moon with the tips pointing towards the east or to towards your right, if you're in a generic term, <laughs> towards your right, which would be my east, okay? Uh, it's about 40 miles off the coast of Turkey. What we know today is Turkey. Uh, banishment was common uh, in the, as a form of Roman punishment in that day. It was usually for political prisoners But there were more harsh types, such as what is supposed uh, here for John, what we know of uh, what he was going through there. It also involved the loss of civil rights and all property except enough for bare existence. In other words, they basically took everything you owned away, even your citizenship and your right to uh, a fair trial and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Persons banished were free to move about the island in minor cases, Mm -hmm. but in John's case, it was different. Uh, William Barclay, in his book on the book of Revelation, says this, and I quote, Sir William Ramsay says his banishment would be preceded by scourging, marked by perpetual fetters, scanty clothing, insufficient food, sleep on the bare ground, a dark prison, and work under the lash of the military overseer. So this was not like some island vacation spot. Uh, He was uh, tortured. There's no other word for it. He was tortured while there. So there's that. Now, the incar- incarceration for preaching. Uh, and that's the next phrase there. For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that's what he was imprisoned for. Uh, it was for preaching God's word that John ended up on this island. Emperor Domitian was known for persecuting uh, Christians during this age. Okay, that's, uh, let's see, an age of individual witness. Now, verse 10 picks up. Uh, down through 18, for the age of instinctive worship. An age of instinctive worship, verses 10 through 18. And the first part of that is what John heard, verses 10 through 11. What John heard. Let's, Let's read those, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And so there there we see the names, the specific names of the seven churches. All right. So that first part, he says, I was in the spirit. Now, some scholars suggest God put John in some form of a trance. Uh, The Pulpit Commentary uh, uses uh, the statement, a state of ecstasy, as does William Barclay. Uh, J. Hampton Keithley, in his book on Revelation, says it was an entrance into an unusual state. That's as far as he would go. Uh, There are other scholars who suggest that John was spiritually and mentally put into a perfect position with God. And that goes back to... Uh, the three forms we were talking about where God sometimes had to put people in exile uh, so that when he spoke to them, it would be an uninterrupted communication, a line of communication. He had John in the right place physically (laughs) in this Isle of Patmos. So maybe mentally he had to put him in the right place. And some of those who back that idea is uh, William MacDonald, who says he was walking, uh, quote, walking in unclouded fellowship. Uh, John Phillips in his book, says, uh, quote, living in two locations. Um, I don't know if he means that physically or what, but I'm thinking more of the spiritual lines, what he's talking about. I was in the spirit. Now, the word spirit here is the Greek word pneuma. Pneuma, which means a current of air or a breath or a breeze by analogy or figure a a spirit. Uh, God did not, Placed John in a trance. Otherwise, we would all be robots in our service of God. God put John in a place where he could use him and then spoke to John through the Holy Spirit. Uh, He did this with Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter three and verse eight. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He did it with Jacob, Genesis chapter 31, verse 11. And the angel of God spake unto me in a dream. Uh, he did it with Joseph, Genesis chapter 37 and verse 5. And Joseph dreamed a dream. He did it with Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. And Samuel was laid down to sleep that the Lord called Samuel. And what about other methods? It wasn't always an angel of the Lord. It wasn't always a dream. Uh, it wasn't always a vision. Sometimes it was other ways. Uh, we spoke earlier of Moses when we talked about that burning bush. And he tried, he was trying to repress or to forget God. And God wouldn't let him forget it. What about Balaam? Uh, If you know the story of Balaam, a king came to this prophet of Israel and said, you know, I want to corrupt these people. I want to get them out of my land. What's an easy way to do that? And Balaam was kind of stuck between, he kind of wanted to say no, which he originally did. But then he eventually said, well, I can tell you how to do it. But he uh, basically was, he he fell for it. He got paid for it. So then he was running away because he's like, when they find out I did this, you know, I'm going to be in trouble. So he was basically running from God. And in doing that, Balaam used a donkey. And if you don't know this, God actually used that donkey to speak to Balaam. <laughs> it was a talking don- donkey. Uh, what about Jonah? You remember, God came to Jonah and told him, I need you to go to preach to the city of Nineveh. And Jonah basically in language today said, Lord, you're crazy. I can't do that. So he tried to run away and he got on a ship and bought a ticket to I believe it was Tarshish, which was probably the furthest point he could find at that that time. But as soon as he gets out on the water, then this huge storm comes up and they're throwing things overboard. They don't know what's going on. They know the ship's going down and Jonah comes forth and says, hey, I know why this is happening. It's because of me. So the people said, well, okay, well, we'll forgive. We'll try and get through it. No, they grabbed Jonah and threw him overboard. (laughs) I mean, they were in a panic. So Jonah gets thrown overboard. And what happens? It says a great fish came and swallowed Jonah. Now, we know in the book of Matthew, it mentions it as a whale. So uh, so a, a swallowing whale was how God spoke to Jonah. In Saul's case, who later became Paul, uh, remember, he was persecuting these Christians. And, and in the book of Acts, it says he was going to Damascus to uh, catch some Christians so he could persecute them. And on this road while he was going, uh, he was blinded. So by blinding him, God got his attention so he could talk to him. He was trying to erase God. Now, as long as there is at least a small remnant, a small group of believers, God will put his own man in a position where he can use him. And all through the Bible, we see that um, circular group of events where the people follow God. uh, They forget God. They fall into sin. And God has to punish them because of their their falling back into sin, for for neglecting him, for ignoring him. And and so he'll end up using one person or or a small group of people to get the people back right again. And and so that's that small remnant. And Paul would write his epistles to the brethren at uh, so-and-so, like in Colossae, where he says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. And John Phillips talks about that. He says, to be so taken up with being in Christ that we forget we are at Colossa is to become a mystic and to embrace wrong ideas about separation. To be so concerned with being at Colossa and forget that we are in Christ is to become a materialist with wrong ideas about sanctification. The two locations must be kept in balance. So what he's saying is you can go too far one way and you can also go too far the other way. So you kind of have to keep it in a balance. So, you might say you want to hear from God, right? And a lot of people do. Uh, d- depending on the situation that you're going through, you're wanting to hear from God. Well, I'll tell you to get alone with God. Get along with Him. Call on Him. Psalms 25, 14 says, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him, and He will show them His covenant. God's not trying to hide Himself from us. He's just waiting on us to get into a point where we uh, sincerely call Him. Most people think, well, you know, they're going to die off got up and sent him a quick text, hey, I need your help today, and go on their way. God's not about that. He wants a personal relationship with you. (laughs) He wants to be one-on-one. All right. Now, uh, this next phrase, on the Lord's day. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, there's two opinions here. First of all, it refers to the day of the Lord. The word day here, meaning... Hemera, which is a literal 24-hour period or a metaphorical sense to indicate an indefinite period of time, a period or an age. Uh, C.I. Schofield, in his notes here, he says, The day of the Lord is that period of time when God openly intervenes in the affairs of men, in judgment and in blessing. It will begin with the translation of the church, talking about the rapture, and will terminate with the cleansing of the heavens and the earth preparatory to the bringing into being of the new heavens and the new earth. And he's talking about events after uh, the battle of Armageddon. Now, the problem with this view, first, it suggests John was transported into another time and had one vision of the entire revelation from this period. This still leads one to believe John would have been in a trance. So John uses such phrases as after these things, after this, after that. And he showed, and I saw, all of which strongly suggests a probable sequence of visions over a period of time, or maybe all at once, but John never says. John mentions seeing things in heaven, which means he could not have been in one place the entire time. The visions John had are grouped into sevens, and to begin on the first day of seven is quite appropriate. Of course, Sunday, first day, that's on Sunday, the first day of the week. This is the first reference to the Lord's day. Some scholars believe that since this is the only time this phrase is used, it must stand for something else. Uh, How did the Sabbath change into the Lord's day? I know many of you that know the Bible pretty well, you've heard of the Sabbath day, and how did the Bible, how did it come about changing into the Lord's day? Now, the word Sabbath is the Hebrew word sabbaton, sabbaton. Or, or Shabbat, okay, which means to cease or to rest, a day of rest, and even in Genesis it tells us on the seventh day God rested, and so throughout the history, even, even today the Jews will take a Saturday and, and basically shut everything down and, and have a day of rest. <clears throat> now Sabbath was observed, like I said, on Saturday and was symbolic of the resting of God after the creation of the world. The Lord's Day is observed on Sunday and is symbolic of the rising of Jesus from the dead. Matthew 28, verse 1, the first day of the week. Now, the three earliest references to the Lord's Day. First uh, is in the Didache, or the teachings of the Twelve Apostles. And that was in chapter 14 and verse 1 of the Didache, when it says, On the Lord's Day we meet and break bread. Uh, The second reference was by Ignatius of Antioch. Writing to the Magnesians describes the Christians as no longer living for the Sabbath, but for the Lord's Day. And then the third one was Melito of Sardis. He wrote a treaty called Concerning the Lord's Day, in which he describes uh, it being on Sunday. Now, all three of these references come from Asia Minor, where the observance of the Lord's Day first came into existence. Um, The next phrase, and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Um, a trumpet is a method. First, first of all, it's a method of instruction. Uh, he heard behind me, <laughs> heard behind me. It is the way of a great teacher to show the student marking the path they should take and speaking from behind words of encouragement. Like if you teach someone to ride a bike, uh, you don't want to stand out in front of them. You'll get run over. But you go behind them. Uh, at first, you're kind of to the side, but you're kind of behind. You're pushing and holding the bike up. And then as they get confidence and pedal the pedals, you know, and they think they're on, you know, they're doing good. And you're slowly letting go until, the, you know, you're, they realize they're pedaling it on their own. Uh, and it does. It takes time. They don't catch on the first time, obviously. So it's still a manner of teaching. Isaiah chapter 30, verses 18 through 21 tells us, And therefore will the Lord wait, that he may be gracious unto you. And therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. Thou shalt weep no more. He will be very gracious unto thee at the voice of thy cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer thee. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner any more, but thine eyes shall see thy teachers. And thine ears shall hear a word behind thee, saying, this is the way, walk ye in it when ye turn to the right hand and when ye turn to the left. So John heard the words from behind also shows that he was in the will of God, just as these verses said. So it's not only a method of instruction, but it's also a means of impression. A great voice, as of a trumpet. Uh, that, that's saying there was some volume involved in it, uh, as of a trumpet. Now this great voice can only be Christ's. Uh, sounds like a trumpet, as of a trumpet. Uh, trumpets symbolize great occasions or a preparation for something uh, very meaningful to happen. All right, I'm going to stop here. Uh, it's been about 31 minutes or so. And we'll just pick up next time with this verse 11, which is kind of in the middle uh, of the study. But we'll, uh, we'll just stop there and give you a chance to take a break and pick back up on the next one, okay, in the next time. Again, I want to say thank you for listening. Uh, I encourage you to do this study on your own. I, this is an incredible book, and I, I said it right at the beginning that most people are intimidated by this book because it's filled with such symbology uh, that they don't really understand it, and that's just because we don't take the time to study it ourselves to know what that means. What you know what what is it saying to me? What, what does it really mean there? You know, a lot of times we just take someone's word for it. So I encourage you take the time do the study yourself. All right. Uh, Again, thank you for listening. Have a great day. God bless you. Thank you.